So here's the deal, everybody. We just absolutely love producing as much content as possible for Film and Whiskey Nation. But if our regular episodes aren't enough for you, then you can head on over to patreon.com slash filmwhiskey, sign up for one of our memberships, and you will get a slew of extra content for your listening pleasure. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. In 2006, director Christopher Nolan and stars Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman gave the world a mysterious thriller that had role reversals galore. In 2023, we make a return trip to Kentucky to try a brand of mysterious origin. The film is The Prestige. The whiskey is Quarter Horse Bourbon. We'll review them both. This is The The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are continuing the Christopher Nolan retrospective with his 2006 film, The Prestige. Bob, doesn't retrospective mean like they are no longer with us? <laughs> Isn't that what it's called at the Oscars uh, you every know, year? I, no, that's like in memoriam. Oh, okay. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, regardless, we're looking back on some Christopher Nolan films. He is very much not dead at the time of recording. So <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> also, at the time of recording, like, do you expect him to just <laughs> listen, man? You gotta, you gotta prepare. You gotta be prepared for these kind of things. So, oh, man, uh, th- man, Brad, th- a new world record. We have gone off the rails in <laughs> 32 seconds on this podcast today. It's it's quite impressive, Bob. <laughs> All right, so Brad, let me set the stage a little bit with the prestige. This is a movie like Memento that I have not watched in a long time, partially because I remember when I first watched it, I was not the world's biggest fan of it. And I know that it has since become one of Nolan's best loved films. And there are people who will like fight you to the death about the prestige. And I did not want to come in here and crap all over the prestige. And I was trying to kind of hedge a little bit and make sure that there was somebody to balance me out. Luckily, Brad, we have a guest on this show today. He is a film critic, one of the nation's preeminent film critics, uh, writer for Vulture in New York Magazine, Bilga Abiri. Bilga, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. And I feel like I can already sense in your voice that you don't know where I'm going to go with my thoughts on the prestige. So let me just say up front, Brad, Bilga, this is a damn good movie. It sure is. Um, <laughs> now, so so the, you are one of the people who has change their opinion of the prestige because there are a lot of those people very much so yeah yeah bob i am so glad that you've come around on this film because it's a movie i remember seeing when it came out in the theaters Uh, i believe i went with my dad and my brother to see it and i i just remember being blown away by how cool it was the problem that i had with the prestige if i could say that i had a problem was that i watched it when it came out and then i didn't watch it for probably a decade And I would always forget because it came out at the exact same time as another magic movie. (laughs) And I would always be like, wait, was which one was it? Was it the the prestige or the illusion? I I don't remember which one I liked because I saw them both in theater. And for the longest time, they both stuck in my brain as as kind of the same movie. Well, let's get this out of the way now. Let's talk about this. The the double bill of magic movies we had in 2006. 
Brad, we didn't know what we had at the time. What what a time to be alive to get these two <laughs> movies. I really liked The Illusionist when that movie came out, and I was really hoping to be able to go back and revisit it before today because I was the guy that was like, uh, you guys are dead wrong. The Illusionist is a much better film than The Prestige. I really loved it when it came out. I'm bummed I didn't get to revisit it, but I think that my big problem with The Prestige that I didn't have with The Illusionist was that we were in like peak Shyamalan, the wake of M. Night Shyamalan on Hollywood and how every movie at the time was being marketed as if the twist was the key to the whole film. And I remember with The Prestige being like, I don't think that that was the way to market this movie because, you know, they don't give you all the cards until the end of the film. But if you're paying attention, like no one's really not trying to hide the twist of the movie from you. And I remember kind of holding Nolan accountable for what the marketing of the movie had done. And I think that really kind of tainted my appreciation of the movie at the time. So I don't know, man. Uh, all that to say, I don't know how The Illusionist holds up, but The Prestige divorced from that context really good movie yeah <laughs> yeah like i said i'm i'm glad that you say that bob because it's coming back to it now i believe i watched it again in the late you know 20 tweens uh watching it again probably my third or fourth time i love this movie man it just it hits all the boxes of a really suspenseful fun thriller and i i'm i'm excited to talk about it Bilga, can you help us set the stage for, I mean, like, just, I don't want to say historically, like, this movie is not that old, but 2006, Nolan's coming off of Batman Begins, and he has this relationship where it's almost like a, you know, one for them, one for me film that he toggles throughout the Batman trilogy. What do you remember the initial kind of reception to this film being? With the prestige, you know, part of it was the one-two punch of the fact that Nolan released both of these, both Batman Begins and The Prestige in the same year, if I remember correctly. Um, mm -hmm. And and Batman Begins was a hit. But Batman Begins, you know, was 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 a fairly modest hit. It wasn't it wasn't an, a huge hit. It was I think it wound up making like two hundred million dollars, some some something thereabouts, um, which was good, which was which was, you know, which was good. And, and it had decent legs, but it wasn't like. You know, it, it it didn't like blow a hole in the box office. It did, however, get great reviews. And I remember, you know, I, I was kind of iffy on Nolan uh, before Batman Begins. I, I liked Memento. I found Memento very clever. Um, I did not like Insomnia. I, I didn't quite know what to make of him. Uh, and then Batman Begins, I had zero interest in a new Batman movie. But you know, then friends of mine were like, "Oh, you, you got to go see it," you know. And and I went and saw it, and I loved it. And and then when the prestige came out, I was like, all right, this 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 is a major dude. Um, mm -hmm. This you know this guy's making you know this guy's churning them out, and, and ironically enough, it's the last time he churned them out. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, and the films contain a number of elements that are that are similar. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, there are themes that run throughout Nolan's films and, and stylistic you know flourishes and things like that. Um, but the, the the stories are very different. Um, I, I will say I, I also saw The Illusionist around that time. I hated The Illusionist. I, I have not revisited it, but I thought that movie was absolute garbage. Um, you mean Jessica Biel as the the main female over Scarlett Johansson didn't intrigue you? I, I will say this: I am a Jessica Biel fan. 
Okay, <laughs> there you go. And it's got Giamatti. I mean, it's a great oh, yeah. Nothing wrong with the cast of that movie, but um, I just found it so ludicrous. And, you know, I mean, the thing about a magic movie that's tough is it has to it has to dazzle you in some way. But it's like cinematically, it's it's hard to dazzle you with magic tricks because it's like, I mean, it's movies. You can you can do whatever. Like, you know, mm-hmm. just, <laughs> the idea of a magic trick is is you know anathema to movies, even though movies share qualities with magic and and many qualities with sort of the way magic evolved. Um, but what I love about the Prestige is it does kind of through its twists and through its use of um distraction and red herrings and things like that it actually does kind of make you feel like you've seen a magic trick mm-hmm. um that's that's the thing that i loved about it and the other thing about it and and you know it's it's interesting to hear you guys talk about revisiting it um you know nolan has made movies that sometimes they're sometimes people think of them, them as puzzle movies and sometimes people think of them as twist movies. I mean, this is one, obviously, Inception is another. Um, and sometimes people use that as kind of a knock against them. But what I would say is, you know, the classic puzzle movie or twist movie, you know, the, the twist or the puzzle or the solution of the puzzle or whatever, or like, you know, the the mind F at the end of the movie, like those are often kind of the raison d'etre of the film, right? That's, that's like mm-hmm. the film is basically almost an excuse to have the twist or the puzzle or whatever. Um, I don't find that to be the thing with Nolan movies. I mean, I returned to them over and over and over. I've, I've seen the prestige like, you know, 10, 15 times at this point, you know, um, I've seen the inception even more. Um, the puzzle is not, the puzzle is not the thing. The puzzle is the thing that that maybe creates some level of interest and excitement and engagement with the film. But but the films stand on their own without that. And same yeah. with the prestige. And, and what I love about the prestige, you know, th- that idea of misdirection, which is kind of the the heart of magic. He does that here, right? I mean, because because he because he, he sets up one twist, right? And as a cer- at a certain point, you kind of realize, you kind of understand where the movie is going and what that twist is. Mm-hmm. A- and that's interesting and it's exciting, but it's not actually the final twist. Like exactly. He's that misdirection. And then, and then he brings the hammer down in the very final shot of the movie. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> um, and then he just fades out, you know, um, which is which I think is beautiful. Interestingly, I mean, I, I don't know if you guys have read the book, but the book is quite different from the film. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no. So just to say, I was a big fan of the Prestige. Then I found it interesting. Some, some. I had a couple of friends who disliked it when they first saw it because they thought, "Oh, you know, this is like a fantasy, um, or like it's science fiction, or something like that." Like, like, like they 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 felt like it it changed genres, but really, it didn't. I mean, it it. It um it adheres to that old um, Arthur C. Clarke uh, saying, which is like uh, you know a great I can't remember the exact saying, but it's like a great scientific discovery is is basically the the um, feels no different than a magic trick. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I agree with you. I think that yes, he gives he brings the hammer down at the end of the film, but also he gives you enough of the twist throughout the movie that watching it through this time. I was so much more impressed with this movie than I was with Memento, a movie that I also like, 
but that I feel is much more about the twist than this movie is about the twist. This yeah. movie is so much more about the deeper themes of obsession and artistic integrity and uh, sacrifice to make art. And mm-hmm. I think because of that, it plays much more like a great tragedy than anything else. And uh, Brad, I think we've kind of beat around the bush a little bit here because I have uh, been waiting with bated breath. To get into our first segment of the day, which we call Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the show where Brad breaks down the plot of the film that he has just seen, often for the first time. I think you've already said this was like your third or fourth time seeing the film. So hopefully that will help you as we put 60 seconds on the clock here, Brad. Do you think that, like, and not to spoil or step on your thing here, but, like, this is another sort of Nolan fractured timeline thing. Mm -hmm. Do you think that plays into the explanation of the movie at all or not really? Uh, Honestly, not really, because I don't think he's, uh, like, out of all of his films, I mean, Dunkirk is probably up there, but he's the least clever about the time stuff here. Like he never tries to trick you into thinking that one timeline is a different one. Like mm-hmm. I don't I like I don't know about you guys. It seemed pretty obvious when we were going to the past versus the present sure, and sure. Yeah. I I don't know. So no, I I don't think so. All right, great. Well, then that makes it a much more straightforward task for you. Brad, you've got 1 minute on the clock. Spoil this movie as you go and go. The Prestige is a film about two magicians in Victorian England one of whom was married to a woman who gets drowned in a magic trick gone wrong because the other magician tied the knots too tight on the rope. She's unable to escape, and this sets off a a decades-long rivalry between the two that becomes, uh, as you said earlier, Bob, obsessive, bitter, and to the point of almost evil. The two men fall in love with the same woman, played by Scarlett Johansson, who works for both of them at different times. And the movie ends with one framing the other for murder. And it turns out that he is unable to truly pull that off as the final reveal is that uh, the man framed for murder has a twin brother who has been Mm. playing him the entire time. And uh, not to bury the lead too much, but uh, Nikola Tesla is also going to say, yeah, uh, 1900s cloning. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. No, uh, no big deal. (laughs) um all right guys where do you want to start today brad i'll let you kind of steer us here do you want to jump right into performances do you want to keep talking about the nolan of it all where should we begin i i'm just fascinated by the fact that david bowie was in this movie right i don't know about you guys but he he walks on screen and you're like huh that he he looks kind of familiar and then you look on imdb and you're like oh why is david bowie in this movie and why isn't he in every movie He's great. He's great in everything. He's, he's he doing incredible oh, yeah. in this. He's doing a preposterous accent, and I am all for it because, you know, Nolan really chased after Bowie to get him in this movie. Apparently, Bowie declined a number of times, and Nolan kind of really pressured him into being in the film. And I think that it's such a stroke of genius in terms of the casting of it, because, like, what is Bowie associated with, right? Like, his first big stage persona is Ziggy Stardust, this, like maybe futuristic alien that comes down as like a as like a savior motif. Bowie always had this sort of 
otherness to him. And like, what better way to introduce the themes of science and progress and the science fiction elements than to put somebody like Bowie in that role? I think it's just a, a stroke of genius just to put him in the film. Yeah, the science being indistinguishable from magic, that feels like a Bowie concept. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I want to say, you know, in, in your summary of the film, you said the final reveal is is the fact that, you know, that, that Christian Bale's character is a twin. That's not the final reveal, of course, right? I mean, the final reveal is that, you know, Hugh Jackman has been killing himself every single night. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know... Burying his his doppelganger uh, in you know tubs of tubs of water. I mean, that's the part that that that's the, the that that to me is the is the great reveal of the movie. Because mm -hmm. I think at a certain point, there's a certain point in the film where you realize the the twin thing. I think where, where yeah. you, it starts to dawn on you around the time when um, when uh, Hugh Jackman um, takes one of them hostage. Mm -hmm. Um, it, at that point, I remember starting to think, oh, wait, I, I see what's going on here. One guy's a twin. And I'm like, oh, I, I got it. I figured out the movie. And of course, <laughs> of course, like it, it builds to that. But then the real, the real reveal is what Hugh Jackman has been doing every night. Um, yeah. I, can I say though, I actually think, and I don't know if I'm just being that guy here. <laughs> I actually think that the final reveal of the movie is that Michael Caine ended up helping Christian Bale. Because that, like, that's like literally the last shot of the film when they're with the daughter. And, yeah. my, and like Michael Caine is helping him. Yeah. And I, I think that for me, you know, you were talking earlier, Bilga, about how this film endures because it's not just about the twist. Yeah. And I think that that's why this movie works is that it's more about the dark levels to which obsession can take you. And it's about the human drama between Bale and Jackman. Mm -hmm. And like the, the idea that, that Kane's character who once nailed a guy into a coffin box for Hugh Jackman would then switch sides. Once he saw how dark he went is like, that's, that's like the twist that you don't expect. I, yeah. I don't know. No, no, I love that. Fair. It's fair. Yeah. No, and, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, it really is about the characters. I mean, and I think, you know, I, I would say um the reason why um this movie, and I, I, I would agree with you, it resonates for me much more than Memento, which is a you know, Memento is like a perfectly put together film. No knock against it. But um there's a certain to me, there's a certain human drama missing from it. Mm -hmm. Not because of what's happening on screen. There's actually what's happening on screen is, is very sad. But because, weirdly, because of the perspective of the film, for some reason, it's hard to, I mean, you feel for that character. But for me, I feel I feel in the abstract, in an abstract way for him. I, mm -hmm. He doesn't move me the way yeah. Bale does in this particularly. I mean, his face has to look like a computer that's resetting every 10 minutes. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's hard to connect with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Because, because you know, something about something about memory is 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 what's you know what's, what's so moving. And and you know, there's a there's a very sort of, I mean, you know, refined, almost existential aspect to this story, which is the idea that you know Christian Bale um, or Borden has been living 
you know, it's not a double life. It's like a half life, right? Yeah. I mean, the idea that these two men, these these two these twins, have basically been sharing the same life and the same identity. Um, and it's funny when you read the book; it's it's more almost more vivid in the book because it's like Borden narrates part of the book, but it's like the two of them. So it's like he's constantly. It's almost it's actually a bit like Memento because he keeps forgetting or he keeps reminding himself of something he said or did. Um, and sometimes speaks about himself in the third person. Uh, and, and later on you realize, oh, it's because it's actually two people narrating. Right. So it's like this, this idea of the divided self, but not just divided, but literally living half lives, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it's not a twin that's hiding. It's not a twin that's like sometimes filling in for one person. Like they, they are kind of, they are literally living one life mm-hmm. to the point where, their identities have been subsumed into one another. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a thing that, that is very, um, you know, it's, a, it's an abstract notion, but somehow Nolan and that cast, they, they make it very vivid in the film and, and, and very moving, I find. And, you know, that's one of the things that I, every time I return to the film, I'm really struck by the beauty and the power of, of Christian Bale's performance and, and yeah. his character. I really don't think that you can divorce this film either from like where it falls in the Nolan catalog. This is smack dab between two Batman movies. And Brad, we talked last week about how you you just really can't underestimate what those Batman films did for Nolan as he continued to hone his craft, but also to develop the themes that he would continually return to. And I think that with this film and to the point you're both making, the reason this movie works for me better than it worked, better than Memento worked is because you have characters grappling with their own humanity and with how far they are willing to go to either maintain an illusion or to, uh, you know, sacrifice themselves in service of that illusion. I think with Memento, because for that character, Leonard, every moment is new. He doesn't really have to weigh those options very much. Like you get one scene at the end where he decides to self-sabotage, right? And that's the key to the whole movie. But you never see him really grappling with that. And to kind of tie all these things together, I think this is best embodied in Michael Caine's performance and character of Cutter in this movie. Because to your point, Brad, he is the person that at the end of the movie has kind of made the biggest, he is the biggest character arc from defending one of these rivals to completely being in the other's camp. And it's because he's not allowing himself to go to those extremes that he saw Hugh Jackman go. And I want to just talk about Michael Caine's performance here. This is the second movie that he makes with Nolan. Uh, He makes six films in a row with Nolan uh, before Dunkirk breaks that streak. I think that his performance here is just pitch perfect and really does influence how much Nolan expands the character of Alfred in the latter two Batman. Like the story he tells in this one, Brad, about uh, the guy drowning and it being very peaceful. Mm -hmm. And then he comes back later and says that was a lie. Like that's. That's the exact same function that the uh, some men just want to watch the world burn speech has Mm -hmm. in the dark night. But you know what? He can give that speech or something that's like functionally equivalent to that speech in every movie. And I will still sign off on that as a choice (laughs) because it's it's freaking great. I'm just going to eat it up, man. Uh, (laughs) Michael Caine is a international treasure. <laughs> like oh, he's yeah. he's just such an incredible actor. And honestly like a- as he was, you know, giving the second half of that speech about drowning, you know, a- at the end of the film, 
I thought that Hugh Jackman was acting his butt off, man. Like mm-hmm. the the horror on his face as he as he's hearing him like confirm what his fears are, and even like you know watching it this time through, you catch or at least I caught how hard he has his eyes closed while the people are inspecting the cloning machine because mm-hmm. he knows that he's about to drown, and like mm-hmm. that like that hit me this time where I was just like, man, Hugh Jackman was killer in this movie. Yeah. Brad, I like, I have so many thoughts on Hugh Jackman. Like let's, let's hold on Hugh Jackman. We'll do Jackman and Bale at the same time. But I really, Bill, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Michael Caine in particular. I mean, Caine is wonderful in this film. I've actually, um, over the course of the past year, I've been, I've been in the midst of a Michael Caine rewatch. Um, I'm, I'm watching everything he's done. Wow. So, um, so where do the Muppets fall in for you? I mean, the, he, well, he's, he's, he's great in that one. Uh, <laughs> he's so he's good. Great in that one. I actually, I actually have not revisited that one yet because, because I think in the end, it's all going to result in a ranking, you know, on okay. those rank lists. Sure. <laughs> it's going to be like 200,000 words. So I haven't even begun to write it yet, but, um, but, uh, he is, um, you know, he's 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 able to bring such humanity to a part with just, you know, I mean, just a few, few lines of dialogue and just a few minutes of screen time. I mean, how much of this movie is he in? He narrates part of it, but he's also the audience surrogate, right? I mean, yeah, he's he's with Hugh Jackman when we're with Hugh Jackman. And then he's and then he turns on Hugh Jackman around the point when we turn on Hugh Jackman, right? I mean, he, mm-hmm. he aligns himself with Christian Bale when when we start to align ourselves with. I mean, it's not like they're it's not like they're totally antagonistic to us while watching the movie, but you know, Hugh Jackman has he has a legitimate gripe. <laughs> His wife was killed, you know, like, um, and there's a, something very cocky about Christian Bale at first, right? Um, but then later. Later, the, the the tables turn. The emotional tables turn, and 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 Michael King kind of rides that. And as a result, you know, he his presence sort of helps propel us towards that character as well. Towards you know, towards one or the other character. So he's used very um, very cleverly in the film. His character is, I mean, his character is like an afterthought in the novel. Like that character is. is just kind of mentioned in the background, he becomes a much more pronounced character in, in Nolan's telling of it. All right, let's talk about the, I guess the what I would say are like the the two female leads of the movie. I mean, we could talk about Piper Perabo as um, Julia, Hugh Jackman's mm-hmm. wife in the early scenes, but really we need to talk about Rebecca Hall and Scarlett Johansson. And I will say uh, just forever, like, you know, from here on after, uh, Rebecca Hall is great in everything she does. She is a freaking treasure. She's great in this movie in a very tortured performance. And I think that in the wrong hands, that role could really tip into uh, kind of over dramatic acting. But she really, really nails the slip into alcoholism and depression. And that character's kind of tragic arc is just played so beautifully by her. Yeah, I I really felt like as I was watching her this time that Anne Hathaway in Les Mis had to have based some of her performance off hmm. of Rebecca Hall here. Interesting. Okay. Like, they, like they had so many similar, there was just something about her by the end of her arc, right? Like when, when she is finally 
at the lowest of the low that I don't know, there was just something about it that felt really similar to me. And part of it's the era, you know, the Victorian era and that, but it that it made me think of her in Les Mis quite a bit. I yeah. I, I can't say I thought the same, Brad, but I'm I'm not gonna discount well, your I, experience. It, Bob, yeah. I know that your, you know, film history isn't quite as extensive as mine, and so uh, well, I, I listen, draw on a lot of different stuff. For, for a noted Les Mis hater, I am just uh, <laughs> I'm very happy to hear you at least mention the movie here on this podcast, Brad. Hey, I liked like the first forty five minutes of Les Mis. It, <laughs> it, was, it was the the other three and a half hours that I didn't like. I mean, Les Mis is a terrible movie, but but she's very good in it. And might I add, she's in that movie the same year she's in The Dark Knight Rises. There you go. There, <laughs> tied it all together. <laughs> she very well might have been uh, might have been um, doing some research into previous Nolan films. For I actually, I, the reason I know this is because I know or not that I know this. The reason I remember this is because I remember in New York Film Critics Circle that year um, we voted her best supporting actress. Hmm. Um, but the way we vote is we we. The, we only put the name of the actor on the ballot. We don't mm-hmm. put the name of the film. Um, and I was voting for her for The Dark Knight Rises, uh, not for Les Mis, although she's very good in Les Mis. Um, and then at the end, when a, when an actor wins, if they've been in other movies that could qu- potentially qualify, we take a vote on whether to include those other movies. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, because New York Film Critics Circle is full of snobs, <laughs> you know, they... <laughs> Uh, they struck down the idea of including The Dark Knight Rises wow. in your award citation. Uh, but this, this this was my early years in the circle. So in future years, I became a little more aware of this you know, the way this phenomenon worked. But I, at the time, I felt so angry because I was like, but wait a minute, she got my vote for that movie. Like, right. you know, mm-hmm. I was voting for her in that movie. It's kind of bogus that like we can't then include that in the citation because, you know, my vote helped put her over the top, whatever. Um, but uh, I think she's great. <laughs> by the way, um, but uh, Bill, no, if, but- if you need to keep talking this through, like we're happy to listen. We can you know, <laughs> help you work no, through this trauma. But the but the thing about Rebecca Hall in the Prestige is that you know she has to like like you said. I mean, she, what she has to do is really difficult. One, she doesn't get a ton of screen time, um, but also she has to express. An emotional reality that we at that point do not have access to. Yeah. Right. So it almost feels like a flaw in the film's design at first. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we're like, and she's like, do you love me? Yes, I do. Not today. You know, or today you mean it. You know, that whole thing, which we don't yet know what's going on. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels like this weird sort of emotional situation that she's in. Like, it's, it feels like a problem that she has. But because we're not seeing enough of their relationship at that point, and, you know, I mean, and and Bale is a very good actor. I, I, I mean, I think Bale is, like, you know, possibly the greatest actor of his generation. But he's not that nuanced an actor because at that point we're not aware of, like, the fact that it's two different guys, right? Um, and and it's, it's funny because it's this delayed emotional reaction to her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So by the end of the film, fog performance the gains a kind of retrospective mm-hmm. gravity. Um, but while she's, while her character is alive, we might sort of be wondering like, well, what's, what's, what's going on here? Like what's, mm-hmm. what's her problem here? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a way to do that. I mean, she could have done that in such a way 
that it just came off as laughable and completely yeah. cold. Uh, but she doesn't like, like we buy it. Like we understand that she's, we understand that she's unhappy and that she's conflicted and that she doesn't really know what's going on. And that feels very sincere. Um, even though we don't have the full picture yet. And I think that's, that's actually a very high degree of difficulty, mm -hmm. both for the filmmaker and for the, for the actor. Yeah. Um, and this idea of delayed reactions and kind of delayed knowledge, I mean, it, it's an idea that runs throughout Nolan's films. You know, I mean, he, I, I interviewed him recently and he said, you know, delayed reaction is just kind of like <laughs> what all my movies are about, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and if you watch him, I mean, that's, that's exactly, yeah. you know, the, I mean, if, if you watch him with that eye, it's like, that's the structure of every one of his films. Um, yeah. So, so in that sense, I mean, I think the prestige works beautifully and, and it is really, you know, it's like a magic trick. I mean, there are all these things that he's, he's like, he's all these balls he's got up in the air and all these things he's juggling and you kind of don't know where it's going. And then by the end, it all, I mean, it all just comes together so beautifully for me at least. Yeah. I think that's, what's so beautiful about her performance is that she is getting gaslit, right? Like, mm -hmm. like super hardcore <laughs> by the man who loves her and by the man who is pretending to be the man who loves her. Like they're both gaslighting the heck out of her. But the crazy thing that he pulls off is like, we as the audience think that she's the crazy one. Yeah. Like, yeah. and, and I just don't know how you pull that off as a performer to be able to show what it's like to get gaslit. And you, the audience member don't even realize that you're partaking in the gaslighting until it's like way too far gone. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, let's talk about Scarlett Johansson. And I don't know that we need to spend a ton of time on this, but, I think this is the movie where I realized that Scarlett Johansson was like like a capital letters movie star. And I'm going to say this in the nicest way I can. It's because I think this is probably one of her weakest performances. Like she's just she doesn't do the accent well. She doesn't have a ton to do in this movie. Um, and yet. When someone is a star of the caliber of Scarlett Johansson, it's almost like. I don't know how to explain it, Brad. It's like you forgive them because even when they're off as a character, they still succeed at being Scarlett Johansson. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's yeah. It's like when when Tom Hanks every once in a while you're like, I don't I, he seems miscast in Road to Perdition or whatever. But then it's like, oh, but it's Tom Hanks and I still will watch <laughs> Tom Hanks do anything I want. You know what I mean? Like and this is I think that kind of Scarlett Johansson performance for me where I certainly wouldn't rank it among her best, but like She's she's very enjoyable to watch in everything she does. Yeah, I, I I guess I would agree with you just from the sense that out of all the actors in this film, I think I probably would have the least notes on ScarJo. I just think she's incredible in everything that she does. I, she is truly one of my favorite actresses. So I, I really like her here. I think she does a great job particularly in the scene where she goes to Borden, uh, Christian Bale's character, and, like, tells him the quote-unquote truth, but then the actual truth, and then when they return to that scene later in the film, like, that whole scene between her and Christian Bale, you can feel the raw energy within her, and, and mm -hmm. I think that's probably her best scene in the movie. Yeah, she doesn't... I mean, you're right in that she doesn't ultimately have that much to do in the film. I mean, I think she's very good. Um, but she is, you know, she kind of has almost like a dimension removed because she's not 
conflicted in the way that the other characters are. I mean, she's conflicted in the way that she has the changing loyalties from one to the other. In that sense, she almost foreshadows uh, Michael Caine, right? I mean, she's kind of a, you know, when he's not on screen, she's kind of an audience surrogate as well, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, but I'm all I'm I'm with you, Brad, in, in the sense that I mean, she can do no wrong. I, I think she's an incredible actor, and, and you know, the year that. I mean, I thought that was just an incredible year she had uh, with uh, Marriage Story and Jojo Rabbit. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Dude. yet so many people just like dunked on her. And I was just like, you are all going to regret this one day. I mean, this, <laughs> this is a person working at <laughs> the highest level of, of their art form. Yeah. Yeah. You know I was going to say Marriage Story and Jojo Rabbit, uh, A, two incredible movies, but B, two incredible performances from Scarlet. Incredible performances. Yeah. Um and, you know, it's just it's so weird because because she kind of got on the Marvel train um, and got on the Marvel train in a way that. I mean, belatedly, she got her own movie, but for a long time, she was the one who didn't get her own movie. Right. And mm-hmm. so she she never quite got the. I don't know, it's like she never quite got the the respect or the, you know, the, the box office sort of. um Oomph, that that may, maybe some of the others did. Um, yeah, yeah. It was almost yet, like she was. Yeah, she she was in every single damn one of those movies. <laughs> just, and then she got killed. You know? Right. I was gonna say it. It was almost like she was undermined from from both sides. Right. Like she yeah. lost the respect of certain people who wanted her to avoid Marvel films, but then she never quite gained the Marvel fans' respect either. For the reason you're saying, like she was never headlining a movie for them and so yeah kind of easy to forget about in some of those movies yeah and she was you know i mean you remember i mean she was she was an art house darling right mm-hmm. i mean she was in you know she was in you know ghost world and i mean it was it's right was... well okay let's talk about the two leads before we go to break because you know we've already talked about christian bale a little bit i've been kind of chomping at the bit to talk about hugh jackman because my my hottest take on this movie is that i think this is Hugh Jackman's performance in this film is one of the best performances in any Nolan film. And I'm quite honestly shocked that Jackman and Nolan never worked together again after this. Um, Hugh Jackman. Brad, we've talked a lot about like Jack Nicholson and how we always we always mention that the key to Jack Nicholson is that he's really good at portraying anger. Like when when Jack gets angry, it's just something that is. And I think with. With Hugh Jackman, it's even more specific than that. It's not just like blind rage, which he does have, but it is uh, exuding like bitterness, like deep seated bitterness. Hmm. And I think about the look he gives Christian Bale when he shows up at the like mausoleum. Yeah. And and man, it's the same look that he is giving throughout uh, Prisoners. I don't know if you've ever gone around to seeing Prisoners, Brad. Mm -mm. Might be my favorite Hugh Jackman performance. He is just... He's and that's why he works as Wolverine, right? I hate to keep bringing this back to comic book movies, but it seems kind of unavoidable today. The reason he works as Wolverine is like he's able to channel this deep-seated bitterness and anger towards everything around him. And it this is the perfect combination of him being sleazy, him being a showman, and him channeling that sort of rage that made him famous. I think this is like the platonic ideal of a Hugh Jackman performance. Yeah, I was I was going to come in today and say the same thing, Bob. I like I think Hugh Jackman steals the show here. And I freaking love Christian Bale in this movie. But Hugh Jackman, I I think the reason I love his performance so much 
is because he starts off so optimistic, mm-hmm. right? Like the the kiss that he gives to his wife on her leg while he's tying up her feet and, and the way they interact and the way, you know, they have that banter when she gives him the name, the great Danton, like th- there's just so much in that that is lighthearted and fun and, and honestly, like just cutesy. And you don't really get a lot of that in Nolan films. And so to see him move from that to someone who is willing to clone and kill himself night after night for a hundred nights straight so that he can, you know, ruin the life of his enemy. Mm-hmm. It's it's a descent unlike many we've seen in cinema, Bob. Yeah, the thing about Hugh Jackman that that I think he's really good at is is a kind of um like righteous anger, right? He's got mm. justified rage. I mean, mm. I know I would I would con- contrast him with Jack Nicholson who is was just like who came out of the womb angry at the world, right? <laughs> and that's that's always Jack's thing is he's just angry at the world, yeah. which is why he became such a star in the late sixties, early seventies when like everybody was just angry at the world. I mean, he he, he captured that quality, and then later as the seventies wore on and then the eighties came about, you know, his his anger there was a kind of distanced, almost snarkiness to it, which was so perfectly which so perfectly encapsulated the way that the boomer generation just like checked out of yeah. kind of um, any kind of sense of, you know, social justice or, you know, world betterment or anything like that. I mean, he was, he became sort of a perfect, even though he's much older than the yuppies, but he became kind of a perfect yuppie icon as a result. Yeah. Um Whereas Hugh Jackman, I mean, Hugh Jackman is in that sense, he's kind of a perfect superhero character because superheroes are always angry about something, right? They, they, I mean, he would have actually made a great Batman. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, but you know, he's got justified anger. There's always something that set, sets him off. And and once it does, you know, it, it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you can really sort of, you know, click into his anger. And that's, I think, what makes him special and why, why I think he's so good here. I mean, you really buy him as a man, just completely obsessed. Yeah. All right, Bilga, you you have just said a minute ago that you think Christian Bale might be the best actor of his generation. I'd like to just hear, I hate to pit the two of them against each other, but if you had to pick the better performance in this movie, who would you go with? In this movie? Yeah. Ooh, um, I mean, I think it's Bale. Uh, I think they're both great. I mean, they're both they're both really great. Sorry, there's like fireworks going off here. Um, <laughs> they're they're both great. Um, I think Bale because he has to. I mean, they both have secrets, right? Like each character has a secret that is sort of haunting them, and that is that is driving us, and and also feels like. You know, as we watch their performance, like we can tell that there's something they're keeping from us that we're going to find out about. Mm-hmm. I think with with Bale, there's a bit more of it. There is a bit more of a an unreadability to him, but but not a you know not a um, not an unreadability that works against the performance, mm-hmm. an unreadability that makes us more interested in in what's going on with him. But I mean, it's very close. I mean, I probably you know they're probably. You know, every time I see the movie, I might change my opinion on who's who's better. Yeah. Right. Because because Jackman also, you know, in the second half of the film, especially, you know, Jackman is also hiding something from us. Um, And he's haunted in a way that that he isn't early on. Right. I mean, the, the, the scene that I always think about with this film 
I can't remember the exact line, but you know, it's after Jackman goes to see uh, the transported man for the first time. And before we see the actual act, there's just this, like, I can't remember if it's like a zoom in on his face or not, but before, like he says, you know, I went to see an, an act today and he was like, it was the greatest magic trick I've yeah, ever seen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He says that before we see it and we totally believe it. Like at that point, I mean, that does such a great job of setting up the transported man. Uh, and we kind of need that, even though, even though it's an incredible magic trick, but we need somebody to say, this is a whole other level mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. magic. Yeah. Well, um, and it's somebody that we trust knows magic, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, that was that was the other thing I was going to say is like this structurally, this script does such a good job of putting its thumb on the scale of either of these guys at different times so that the audience is sympathizing with each of them and root, kind of actively rooting against the other at other parts of the movie. And I'm thinking in particular about the fact that like when Tesla leaves the machine to him and is warning him and warning him and he says, you know, Tesla knew that his warnings would go unheeded. You get this great scene of Jackman, like literally rolling up his sleeves and getting to work tinkering on the machine. And it's this great picture of like, you know, America versus Britain and like the American ingenuity and the the hardworking guy who's going to pull himself up and make something of himself and, and win this battle. And as that's happening, they're intercutting it with essentially like the end of Christian Bale's marriage, where he seems to be at his most villainous as a character. Yeah. And so I just love the way that Nolan makes the I guess I would call it the downfall of Jackman's character all the more tragic because at certain points of the movie, you're actively rooting for him. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and and, and that, you know, his obsessive journey uh, into the you know into America. You know, a, the performance has to drive that to such an extent. I mean, it's such a. I mean, if you think of this story turns on a dime, mm-hmm. the guy writes Tesla on a piece of paper and the other guy goes to America. Um, and this is like what the 1870s. I mean, this is not this is not an easy trip. This isn't like, you know, I booked the flight. I mean, this is like <laughs> he changes his life. Right? right. I mean, you know, to, to go into the American heartland in the 1870s from the UK, um, even though he is American, which is kind of funny um you know that's a huge deal especially for someone who was who was fled from his background right i mean it, it's like and it's just like because christian bale wrote tesla on a piece of paper like um <laughs> and, and to to sell that to us is you know that's that's again it's a high high degree of difficulty uh situation there and and, and he does it you know we we totally buy that, that this man would go to what is effectively the ends of the earth in that age um for this brad i think this is a good place for us to hit pause what do you say we try this quarter horse bourbon and then we'll come back and keep chatting about the prestige let's get to it all right everybody today we are looking at quarter horse kentucky bourbon whiskey uh, they did not market the full horse, only one quarter of the horse, Brad. <laughs> when you go to your horse butcher, you can ask them for a quarter horse. Ooh. Yeah. That's a great joke for people from Kentucky. I'm sure they love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here's the thing about quarter horse. I picked this up for us, Brad, when we made a trip to Kentucky and I stopped at one of my favorite stores in the world, Party Source. 
And up towards the front of Party Source, they have a huge section of little 50 ml sample size bottles. You know, we used to call them airplane bottles, but you don't mm-hmm. get them anymore. And it was all the major brands. It was like Maker's Mark and Jack Daniels. And then they had Quarter Horse. And I thought to myself, like, well, I've never heard of this brand, but for them to be carried at such a major retailer and to have invested so much money in making these little tiny bottles, like they must have a big conglomerate behind them. Maybe this is like a Heaven Hill brand or something that I've never heard of. So I picked a couple up for us. They were a dollar a piece. And I have come to find out that I know very little about this brand because they are not (laughs) what I thought they were. Like they're they're an Owensboro, Kentucky distillery from my understanding. Uh, And I think that they're aging their bourbon more now than they were when we bought these samples about a year ago. I'm looking at their website. It says that their bourbon is now considered a straight bourbon, which would mean at least two years old. And the ones that we have in our hands do not say that. And in fact, on the side, in very small print, it says aged a minimum of one year. So this is very young whiskey. Very excited to pair this with uh, the Prestige. <laughs> see if they can pull off a magic trick here. Oh, man. We'll, we'll see about that. I don't have any mash bill info. I know that it says it's 46% ABV, so 92 proof. That's all we have to go with, Brad. That's about it, man. Yeah, I'm, I am not excited to get into this with you. I have been letting this kind of air out in my glass for a little while now. When I first poured it out, it had... Um, I mean, I'm just going to be frank here, an almost offensively young smell to it, a mm-hmm. like a a craft whiskey smell and also a young whiskey smell where <laughs> it reminds me of some of those like really bad whiskeys we've had. I will say that this one, <laughs> it had that it didn't quite have that like chemical Tarnexy smell I've gotten before, but it smelled almost like artificial like coconut hand lotion or something it almost smelled Ooh. like artificially sweet to to like mask how young and grainy it is yeah yeah i'm i'm with you 100 percent. and like every time i think about coconut hand oil all i can think about is eating it so mm. this is going to be a great great experience Bob. <laughs> i can already tell yeah i don't uh, like for... this on the nose man uh, i'm sorry i don't mean to cut you off but i forgot yeah. to give it a score i'm gonna give it a four and a half out of ten on the nose yeah, I give it a five out of ten. Uh, it smelled like cherry Robitussin to me. Mm, okay. Uh, there's the corn, there's the ethanol, and then this is a note that I've never given before, and it's a note that like if you if you know you know you know, <laughs> it's it's it smells like barn. Uh, I just love that you described it as if you know you know you know you know. <laughs> yeah, it smells like barn, Bob. Yeah. It and does that, smell that's like all barn. I'm going to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of what I mean when I call it grain forward. It's not even so much grain forward. It's like hay forward. Do you yes. know what I mean? Like wet. There is that wet, wet hay. hay. Yeah, 100%, man. Uh, not great. No. And I'm sipping nope. this live. I know you've tried it already. So I'm going to give it a sip while you influence me with your uh, tasting notes. Yeah, honestly, the taste is not good. Uh, it tasted kind of like cheap red wine. Like, like if you bought like a $4 bottle of red wine, it was, it was kind of fruity. It tasted like sweet corn that didn't have any like seasoning or butter on it. And it tasted like ethanol. So four and a half. Great, great score for a one year aged whiskey. (laughs) I don't know how to explain what just happened on my palate. Um, It's almost like this whiskey 
rushed itself down my esophagus. Like it was the fastest tasting experience I've ever had. It was like sweet, 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 honey, vanilla. You swallow it. It's like, oh, a little bit of oak. And then like midway down my esophagus, it like detonated a bomb of like Mm -hmm. really, really prickly alcohol to the point where I was like, oh, if like it mimicked the feel of like acid reflux. (laughs) you can hear me over here i'm like struggling through it um i wouldn't call it a harsh whiskey but it's like not complex at all and then you don't notice what you've drank until like midway through the finish of it and then it like reignites this really prickly alcohol burn i don't think Mm -hmm. this is a poor whiskey on the palate but it's nothing to write home about i'll give that a six the finish again like i'm struggling through it it doesn't taste bad but the alcohol burn doesn't feel balanced out with the rest of the experience. Uh, it is a little bit harsh. So I'm going to give it a, I don't know, a 5 out of 10. Yeah, I actually gave it a 5 out of 10 as well on the finish. It's it's short. It's grainy. It's generically sweet. Uh, it does. It's not the most offensive part of the whiskey, but it's not good. Uh, for balance, I give it a 4 out of 10. I actually think this is well balanced in the sense that it's all bad, but I'm not going to give it a good score because it's the 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 well balanced experience all the way through. I don't know if we're just like finally living into our truest selves, Brad. We're usually not this uh, curt with our comments on a whiskey, but like, folks, I really am enjoying our conversation with Bilga today, and I really would yeah. like to get back to that. And I just don't like this whiskey. It's not it's not great. Um, I will give it a five out of 10 on the balance. I think that with some time, this actually could be a pretty good whiskey. Like it doesn't taste a f- like, uh, offensively young or anything. It's just a really young whiskey that tastes harsh right now because it needs time to mellow out at four years. This might be good at one year, which we have it at not great. Uh, so it's a five out of 10 for me. And that brings us to value. Now, like I said, we were drinking $1 worth of this. Brad, how much is a 750 ml bottle of this? Uh, It is $30, Bob. Hmm. It's hard to give it a a true value score because I know that they're releasing a more aged version of it now. Yeah. If this, what we have, was magnified up to 750, uh, I would not pay $30 for this. I I mean, if this was like 15 bucks, I'd be like, all right, cool, give it a shot. I know it's a craft distiller, and honestly, $30 for a craft whiskey is not bad at all, but the whiskey itself is not good. So I'm going to give it, I don't know, I'll be generous. I'll give it a 6 out of 10 on value. (laughs) Bob, this is a 1 out of 10 on value, bro. $30 for this? Come on. Come on. I guess what I'm sure that their two-year product is better. Yeah. But uh, I'm going to give it fine. I'll give it a one and a half out of ten. I think the only generous. reason I'm giving it, you know, we, it's our, our classic thing of like how we consider value. I don't know that a craft distiller. Well, I don't know that a craft distiller can make it can produce a bourbon for less than like a thirty dollar price point. Like this is pretty. You got to admit, when you think about like all the craft distillers we've ever sampled from, their bourbons are always like $45 because it's it's really hard for them to make yep. a profit off of this. So like this is already like bottom, bottom, bottom tier pricing for a craft whiskey. And I'm trying to at least give them credit for that because it's not like they're trying to upcharge people too much. But you're right. I don't think it's worth $30. I'm coming out to a... Bob, twin- go ahead. 
I have three words for them. Mm. Make better whiskey. Man, you are like, you're on one today, dude. Jeez. <laughs> well, there goes the possibility of us ever working with the quarter horse whiskey, folks. Uh, I am not going to be quite as harsh. I'm coming out to a 26.5 out of 50. What are you coming out to, Brad? Uh, I came out to, on the dot, a 20 out of 50. Oof. So we're at a 46 and a half out of 100. This is, folks, one of the lowest rated whiskeys we have ever had on film and whiskey. And I, it feels weird to say that, Brad, because I know for a fact we've had significantly worse whiskeys than this one. But I, I mean, there's nothing to write home about with this whiskey. It's, you know, it needs more time. It just does. Bottom line, end of story. Yeah, th- this is a whiskey that needs more time and a lot of things, Bob. Mm. It's not good. You know what is good? What's that? The Prestige. The Prestige is so good, man. <laughs> it's such. A, it's just so entertaining. Let's get back into talking about that. What do you say, Brad? Let's get to it. All right, everybody. That was Quarter Horse, a whiskey that I refuse to say another word about. <laughs> All right, there it is, man. I'll I'll say a, a couple more words. Uh, not great whiskey, Brad. Mm-hmm. Mm. No, you didn't have to say. Yep, yep I, I see what you're doing. All mm-hmm. right. On that note, I will segue us into our next segment, which we call Two Facts and a Falsehood. Brad is going to try to stump you both to our right. And what is wrong? Two facts and a falsehood. Two facts and a falsehood is the part of the show where Brad presents three items to me as fact about the making of this movie, one of which is a total lie, and it is my job to suss out which one is the fabrication. I, uh, thankfully, have a big fan of the movie here today that seems to have some inside knowledge about this movie, so Bilga will be my phone-a-friend on the day if I need some help. Brad, I am sitting right around 500 on the season. You've been doing a pretty good job keeping me in check this time around, man. Yeah, I I think that we are like evenly matched at this point. And mm-hmm. I, and honestly, that makes it a little more enjoyable for me, I think. It like it truly is a microcosm of the prestige. Like yeah. I <laughs> you have metaphorically shot off two of my fingers and uh and I'm coming for you at this point. <laughs> Is is this podcast just going to end with us murdering each other somehow? Do you have yeah, a twin they... brother out there? <laughs> Little do you know, man. <laughs> Can we just, right. like, they don't talk about this at all. But, like, was this really just a plot for the twin brothers to both have sex with multiple women? <laughs> Christopher Nolan and his brother writing this screenplay are like, you know what would be awesome? Because <laughs> if we could tell our you life story. Same right. time. <laughs> I'm sorry, oh, I can't man. be the only person that thought about that. At oh, this, no. point. this is this is basically Christopher Nolan's version of Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like we can get very Freudian with this movie, and I feel like we will before the day is over, Brad. But uh at the moment, you have a task ahead of you, and that is to lie to me. And I hopefully will be able to figure out which one is the lie. Hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. Fact number one, Chung Ling Su was a stage character in real life created by William Ellsworth Robinson, a white man who disguised himself as a Chinese man to cash in on audiences' enthusiasm for the exotic. Hmm. He lived as Chung, never breaking character while in public, but he died in 1918 when a bullet catch trick went wrong, saying, my God, I've been shot, which were both his last words on the... on the stage, and the first English he had spoken in 19 years. 
That's a heck of a. I, I that's need a, a good one. Applause. That's Listen, a good one, man. Yeah, even if you made that up, I gotta say that n- nicely done. <laughs> Fact number two: Ridley Scott was initially attached to direct this film in the early 2000s and had hired Jonathan Nolan to write the film. He chose, however, to work on other projects, and Jonathan suggested the project to his brother. Hmm. Fact number three: When Alfred is in prison. His inmate number is D23. The movie was released by Touchstone Pictures, a Disney subsidiary, and D23 is the official Disney fan club. 23 referring to 1923, the year Walt Disney opened the studio. So are you saying that it's an intentional reference or just like something fun? Uh, I believe it is an intentional reference. Got it. Got it. But the person on IMDb who wrote that, you know, I, I don't know what was going on in their mind. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, okay. Bilga, I think number one is true. It at least sounds true. It is dense enough that I don't think Brad took the time to write all that down. <laughs> that is rude. <laughs> what, what, one sounds true to me too. Yes. That, no. That, not having, not having met you before, Brad, I was going to say, <laughs> I was, you know, the, 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 the I don't seem really that intelligent. Influenced. Is that yeah. what you're saying? You seem like a guy that cuts a lot of corners. That's what he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying, you know, I'm saying, this doesn't seem like a thing that he would have put that much effort into. <laughs> Believe me, you are you are correct. It you does feel right, but it also feels it, it does feel like a piece of like great magic lore. Like it's yeah. actually it feels it feels true to, in that sense. Number two is one that I'm kind of circling here because I know just from skimming the Wikipedia page before we press record that uh, there were other filmmakers attached to this project. The one that I saw was Sam Mendes. Uh, which I think would have been made for a really interesting and and probably not as great movie, but I did not see Ridley Scott attached. And so I'm kind of circling that as a potential, okay, maybe not. Uh, number three, I'm struggling to figure out like how it even applies to this movie. Like, like oh, cool. The letters D23 sometimes mean something else. So, Bilga, I'm really waffling back and forth between two and three, but I'm I'm kind of leaning towards two. Do you have a sense in your mind of which one is the falsehood? I'm. I think. I think two is the falsehood. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I say that despite the fact that I know that Ridley Scott is a is a serial developer and serial attacher of himself to things. Um, so it feels like it it could very well be true, but that's also why I think it might be false. Um, whereas the other thing is just too too. It's 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 too stupid to not like it's too stupid to not be a thing that people talk about. Like I'm like So so what you're saying, Bilga, is either the facts are too smart for me to write or too stupid for me to write. No, 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 it's it, it, it's, it's not that. It's 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 that it's it, it it feels like the kind I you know what it is? I'm th- I don't, what I'm saying is you're too smart to have come up with a falsehood like three. Aww. Thanks, like, man. I, I, I I'm like, if you that. were going to come up with a falsehood, you would have come up with a, a, a better, like a more intelligent falsehood than three, which just sounds like <laughs> some random thing that some idiot on the Internet said. <laughs> I am half inclined to just say three is the falsehood just so we can stop stroking Brad's ego here for a minute. Um, let's see. I'm going to say two is the falsehood, Brad. I'm going to lock it in as my final answer. 
<laughs> I, I think that this is the happiest I've been to say that you're right. Hey! <laughs> this, I will say, normally, two facts and a falsehood is a roller coaster for Bob. That was a roller coaster for me, guys. <laughs> I, I'm feeling, I'm feeling emotionally drained right now. It was, it was a combo of getting beat up emotionally and then getting affirmed at the end. You know, yeah, like it, yeah, it really that, got man, you. Yeah, you guys pulled the rug out from under me and then helped me up. <laughs> yeah, it's it like a, we, we delivered a little prestige there at the end. Right? Exactly. <laughs> All right, here's here's the thing I want to talk about. Here's my question for you. So I was reading Roger Ebert's review on this because at this point, if the movie has a review by Ebert, I have to read it. Mm -hmm. And he he gave it three stars. And the final part of his his commentary I thought was fascinating because he basically docked this movie a star because at the end of the day, it wasn't. Uh, how do I want to say it? There was actual magic involved, mm -hmm. right? Like he, like he is getting cloned, and I, I think that the way Roger presented it was like I wanted it all to be a trick at the end yeah. that you know was manufactured because that's the whole point of magic tricks. Like we're not in the 1800s anymore. We don't think that these things are you know truly supernatural magic. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a fascinating point, and it 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 took me to this point. Where I'm wondering, like, at the end of the film, there's a clear villain, right? Like, Hugh Jackman is the villain of this movie, and Christian Bale is is cast upon with a uh, a merciful light by the end of the film. Is this movie a commentary on CGI? Yes, it is. That, Brad, thank you for that. This was going to be my big think piece uh, pitch to Bilga and Vulture for the end of this. Uh... <laughs> no, but I, I really do think that there is a particular reason, and, and Ebert was not alone in this, in his criticism of the movie. He basically argues that Nolan stops playing by his own rules, the rules of the world that he's created, by introducing a literal, like, deus ex machina at the end of the movie. Like, there's a mm -hmm. machine that clones somebody. We did not know that, that this universe operated in, within this set of rules. Right. I mean, it's almost like a Tarantino, like, oh, by the way, we killed Hitler. Right. Like, well, oh, I didn't realize that this was a <laughs> historical fiction. I, we can do that. Yeah. And and uh, I was reading another review that basically the poll quote from it was like, I don't mind science fiction. I just want to know that that's what I'm watching. And mm -hmm. so there were a number of critics that felt kind of duped by the end of this movie. I think that's intentional. And I think that like if you're going to take the Freudian auteurist reading of this movie. The person that breaks the rules, the person that can't get one up on Christian Bale by playing fair is the guy who introduces new technology into the mix. And uh, Christian Bale and Christopher Nolan has gone on record and become one of the biggest champions for filming movies on film and preserving movies that are shot on film. Like he he has become, I think, probably more than anybody else, except maybe Scorsese, like the champion of the analog as opposed to the digital. And this movie, if you want to take that reading, I think you could look at that Hugh Jackman character and say that's exactly what what Nolan was trying to do was to present this guy as you're cheating by trying to introduce this entire new system. You can't do it better than somebody. And so you cheat. And the cheating is mm -hmm. the introduction of these computer, 
you know, facsimile movies that are being churned out from the time this movie's made to now. I really do think that's a legitimate reading of the movie, Brad. Mm. I'm just going to I'm just going to soak in that for a minute. Watch Bilga come in and be like, yeah, that's not a that's not a legitimate. You guys are idiots. (laughs) I think that's a really interesting reading. I mean, I I think I I don't know that that's what he was thinking of. um, Like in the moment, like in the moment. (laughs) But 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 I mean, I think I think. You know, having watched his films and and, having read interviews with him and things like that, I mean, there is a kind of. um, how do I say this without without sounding like a criticism? But there is a kind of you know almost a Burkean conservative quality to Nolan, mm-hmm. a sense of like you know preserving the past or preserving aspects of the past and and being you know somewhat skeptical of of technology. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's in it's in all his movies, right? Um, the idea that that knowledge can be a dangerous thing or the idea of the machine that must not be used. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think he's fascinated by this stuff. I think he's fascinated by the idea of, you know, science and the idea of progress and the idea of, you know, can we build this thing? Can we, can we do this thing? Like these are all ideas that that I think he's, he's engaged with throughout his career, but then there's also this like, Oh my God, what have we done? Right. I mean, you see it in the, you see it in the dark night, right? Mm-hmm. With, with Batman's like the citywide sonar that he creates mm-hmm. at the end of the film, which, you know, a lot of people um, were critical of the film for that because they were like, oh, this is a justification for Bush era surveillance. And I was like, no, it's actually like a criticism of Bush era surveillance. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Like it's, it's a thing that in many ways it's, it's Batman's moral downfall that he uses that thing. And he, and he, and you know, he asks that it be destroyed and, in many ways, it's one of the reasons why he exiles himself from Gotham at the end of the film. You know, it's kind of, you know, allows himself to be punished and and thought of as a murderer because because of the the guilt that he feels over mm-hmm. this thing. Um, so, and you know, I mean, you know, people will see. I mean, anybody that knows the story of Robert Oppenheimer is like that's. <laughs> I mean, the machine that must not be used, the ultimate machine that must not be used, an atom bomb. You know. Um, and so, I mean, it's an idea that runs throughout Nolan's filmography, um, and and so there's that there's that kind of fascination with and skepticism of um, that type of sort of quote unquote scientific progress. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like it's not really scientific progress, but the idea uh, that you know there are things we can do, and and if we take our knowledge and our research to their logical conclusion, like. Are we sure we're going to be happy with what we find? You know, mm. right? I I really do love the idea of these characters as sort of representative of Nolan in a way, though. And I think that there there are elements of the themes that we see throughout Nolan. So, like, if you want to read Nolan onto these characters, I think that final confrontation between the two, between Bale and Jackman, it has such fascinating implications because they're both right and they're both wrong, and it's really jackman in a way that gets the last laugh even though he's dying and he he basically tells christian bale like you never understood why we do this like you're obsessed with the craft you're obsessed with getting better but you get no pleasure out of it you get no enjoyment out of it and he says like i i have a much more pessimistic outlook on the world but what i get 
joy from is being able to fool these people for one second and seeing the look on their faces. And mm-hmm. I've I've been really struggling to figure out like is does Nolan believe that? Like is Nolan inserting himself into a character that he may not actually agree with his motivations on? Like cuz I think I can't tell if he's associating himself more with Bale or more with Jackman, right? It seems in a way like Nolan's almost trying to teach himself something at the end of this movie. And I find it to be, you know, we have these movies every now and then, Brad, where we, you and I just, you know, we had a field day with Spielberg. Like every, every mm-hmm. movie with Spielberg is like, you could psychoanalyze <laughs> the hell out of this, right? Yeah. I feel like this might, this movie in particular seems the most like a window into Nolan's psyche. But I, it's not always 100% clear what he's implicating himself in. Yeah, I mean, in, in a certain sense, this is a movie about putting on performances, mm-hmm. right? Like getting up on a stage and putting on a show for people where they suspend their disbelief. So, like, in a weird way, this is a movie about making movies. Yeah. A- and I, I think that with that in mind, you can definitely point to certain things and say, like, yeah, Nolan is is most likely inserting himself into these places. Mm-hmm. I, I think the fascinating thing for me is the idea of, like, Jonathan and him as a as a duo like uh, to me it's just fascinating that Jonathan continues to write these movies for him and the idea that they are a pair here like that is fascinating to me to see played out in the prestige that these two brothers are so close that they're able to work together in such a capacity right like like, there's got to be something there right and to you know and to share a woman you know, like very crucially, that is we we cannot emphasize enough. That is the key to this whole relationship. Christopher had to like sit down with his wife one night and be like, "All right, honey, like this listen, isn't actually yeah, about us." Please, please don't read too much into this movie. Um, Brad, before we get into our last couple segments, I feel like I'm going to be the guy that I always hate hearing from. And that's the guy that's like, well, actually, I found some plot holes in this. I hate the plot hole guy, right? But I do think that the reason I will not give this movie like a perfect score and that I don't think it works perfectly is that while it's not reliant on the twist, there are implications of the twist that are kind of like, hold on a second. You know what I mean? Like, why did Hugh Jackman just hold on to all of these bodies in the basement? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you can't like dump them in the river, like tie a brick to them or something. Like there are there's just a few unanswered questions that if you think about it for more than 2 seconds, it really does kind of harm the twist of the movie. I think that's ultimately why like the fact that the movie's not relying on the twist is a good thing because if it was relying on the twist, I think people could really like eviscerate this movie if they wanted to. But there's just something about like, was the makeup on uh, on the twin really that convincing that uh, they could <laughs> kidnap him and bury him alive after I'm assuming roughing him up and like his false mustache never came off like and they never yeah. noticed that he looked exactly like Christian Bale with a mustache. You know what I mean? Like there are elements of the movie that it's you really got to s- stretch the limits of your belief. For me, the one thing that really stretched my belief was the fact that he just had made millions and millions of dollars off of his magic show so that he could go live in Colorado for six to ten months and finance all of Nikola Tesla's stuff. Like, that was the one thing where I was like, 
man, where did he get all this money? And then he comes back and he's able to establish himself as an English lord with like a castle and grounds and servants. <laughs> I was just like, where did all this money come from? <laughs> but isn't isn't his whole thing that 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 that's actually like that he is actually he comes from money, right? Isn't that I thought that was the whole thing. Like Yeah, like there's definitely class oh, elements to it. That's but yeah, because yeah, he does have that line where he says, like, you know, my family thought that this was too, you know, low for me. Yeah, like he's running from his his family well. Oh, no, you're probably right. I honestly didn't think about that. Yeah. Um but but you know, that's that's, that's fair. Um one thing that really pulls me out of the movie and this is a complete aside guys is like when he's dressed up as the twin. What's what's the guy's name that he calls himself as the twin? Oh. Oh god, I forgot. Yeah, I, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, we'll call him Jeff. When he's when he's dressed up as Jeff. <laughs> They get, you know, he has these kind of like little pudgy chipmunk cheeks a little bit. He looks exactly like Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, like in Victorian garb. And, and there were a couple times that I was like, how much better would this movie be with like a day man song inserted into it? You know, like I, I could not get over. Go back and watch it again. It's it's uncanny how much he looks like Charlie Day. Oh man, we need to get away from Dayman real quick, Bob. <laughs> so so I, I actually have a a, a plot hole as well, um, and it, it I think it only really dawned on me the last time I saw the film. But possibly it dawned on me before too, and I just forgot about it. But so, I mean, as we see in the opening scene of the film, Christian Bale, he's his character. Like it's you know, Hugh Jackman is doing the transported man. Christian Bale goes down there sees Hugh Jackman in the in the tub of water drowning um and he uh you know he, he tries to you know bust through and he doesn't and you know is, is accused of Hugh, killing Hugh Jackman um but like given how quickly the the magic trick works by that point Hugh Jackman would have been replicated already in the audience right? and like re-emerged yeah a hundred percent emerged right so at that point you can't blame it like you can't accuse him of murdering the guy mm -hmm. or I think that, you, you I think have the, to you have to reveal that there is another hugh jackman right i mean it's it's th that doesn't quite work for me i think the implication there is that like with most times where they're both undercover mm -hmm. the magician figures it out like he, I think he sees Christian Bale come up on stage and makes the split second decision of like, I am not going to come out and reveal myself after I get cloned. Mm -hmm. I'm going to run off and start this new life because this is my opportunity to frame Christian Bale. Like that was at least my reading of it, right? Like he made he made the decision because I, I think the the cloning machine, he recalibrates it so that instead of cloning him in place. The clone is the one that stays behind in place and gets dropped into the, the water. And then the real Hugh Jackman is the one that gets shot into the back of the theater, right? Oh, see, I never thought that. No, no, they're, they're both real. That's the thing. It's like, because he says, I never knew if I was going to be the one to drown or not. Like, that's mm -hmm. that's the thing that's that's tearing him apart is that it, it, it I mean, it's a, it's a, if you think about it, it's kind of an elegant um, counterpoint to the fact that. Christian Bale is living two lives. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, like he's he's like dying a death. Like he's 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 dying two deaths in a way. Like not two deaths, but 
like it's a kind of like but it's like a mirror image of that right um because you know Christian Bale never knows who's going to who's living his life at any given moment and then Chris Hugh Jackman doesn't know who's dying his death at any given moment mm, yeah like, yeah um so that's the thing it's like he doesn't know because his his his, his consciousness is being fractured essentially um and there are two of him but one dies um and that's I mean, that's that's fascinating because he doesn't know. He doesn't yeah, know like yeah. when he goes into the thing, that particular consciousness. Am I am I the one that's going to end up in the drink, or am I the one that's going to end up in the thing? Yeah, got it, got it. Honestly, it it almost feels like getting into a time travel conversation with your friends about <laughs> like how time travel works, right? Yeah, where you're like, well, if he if he's splitting, like, is he an exact copy at the back of the uh, at the back of the theater that like not only is an exact copy of knowing everything that the original knows, but also feeling everything that the original feels like feeling the depth of hatred towards Christian Bale. And, and like, like there's so many questions that I had coming out of the theater when I first watched this of like, and it was all about the cloning. Like I didn't, I didn't care about anything else in the film. I was like, I need to know how this cloning works. And And now 15 years later, I'm like, Oh, the movie's a lot more than that. (laughs) Well, well, I mean, it is, but it also it's like it ties directly into that, right? It, it ties into this idea of the fractured self and and what that means for cloning, and which is actually, you know, which I guess is a question if you know if cloning cloning were to be possible, like that's a, that's a thing that we would have to be wrestling with. And but the fracture itself is also this idea that runs throughout Nolan's movies. I mean, the superhero movie is like Bruce Wayne and Batman. I mean, talk about a fractured self and a guy who can't live. Yep one full life, one fully realized life. Um, I mean, you see a variation of it in Inception. You see a variation of it in Interstellar. Uh, you see it in Tenet, right? I mean, oh, you know, yeah. the, the most powerful moment of Tenet for me is, you know, at the end when they go back to the airport and we suddenly realize, oh, he was fighting himself in that scene. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, that scene is so powerful to me because it's like, Obviously, within the context of the movie, it's about a specific thing and, you know, it's an action movie and whatnot. But, like, there's such a such great metaphorical power in that, you know. Um, and, and I think Nolan is very much aware of it because he's been he's been playing with this idea his whole life. Right. And even even Memento. Oh, yeah. You know? Like, who killed my wife? Oh, I did. <laughs> you know, like. Mm-hmm. But I, mean, I can't live with that. So, yeah, let me. Yeah, exactly. That. Right. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's just this, this thing in, in in all his movies, and I find that really powerful. Um, but yeah, you know, it's in the book. It's it really is. I, I, you know, it's it's a really great book, but it is so much more a novel than a film. And and I actually I gained even more um, respect for Nolan and and for Jonathan Nolan uh, after I read the novel because I, I just kept thinking to myself. There are so many changes they've made to the novel while sort of maintaining its spirit. Like the changes that they've made make it so much more effective as a film. Like the Mm. novel, you could not adapt that novel straight into a movie. It just wouldn't work at all. Uh, It works beautifully as a novel. Um, And it's so different. Like the film is so different in so many ways, but, but they've streamlined it and simplified it, but then expanded on certain other elements in the, in the novel that are just briefly mentioned. Um, And and it really, it just, it's a, it's a wonderful adaptation in that sense. I mean, if I ever like taught a class about, you know, adapting books to film, I I would assign this one. 
man, I'm really regretting not picking the book up before we recorded this one, Brad. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, every once in a while, I think like you can get away with it. Like, you know, I didn't really need to read the book because the movie's so good. But it sounds I... like they really, you know, it, it is. It's really interesting when it's a true adaptation when it's not just lifted from page to screen, and they they do find ways to make it more cinematic. It sounds like that was the case here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't have to read the book to to be able to appreciate the movie. So so don't worry about the fact that you haven't read the book. But it is like if you do read the book, you gain a newfound, a, a different appreciation of it because it's like, oh, wow, like what possessed them to to do this with this story element? You know, it's, mm. you'll see and you'll read the book. I mean, it's, it's honestly I read it in like two days and I'm not a fast reader at all. And it's like 350 pages. It just breezes by. Mm. Well, guys, I think this is like a perfect segue into talking about a perfect movie to pair this up with. So Brad, let's get into our final segment of the day, which we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggle. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Like I said, Let's Make It a Double is the part of the show where we pair this movie up with a second film to make the perfect double feature. Brad, as we have a guest with us today, I think we should let him go first. Bilga, we've been giving you some time to uh, to ruminate, to marinate on this. What would you pair the prestige with? You know, I, I went back and forth on this one. Uh, obviously, there are two sort of obvious examples that that I that are not going to be my choice. But you know, we've talked about the Illusionist. I mean, it, it, the movie effectively was a double feature in that sense. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the Illusionist, which is the other period magic drama thriller that about obsession that that came out around the same time and which i think blows but i haven't revisited it since then so, um, but was also seen by a lot of people as because prestige was kind of like the studio movie and the illusionist was like the sundance movie so right people, oh, you know, no the illusionist is like the real the real good movie and <laughs> prestige is just you know studio fluff with movie stars and um so um, and then, of course, there's the the obvious, also obvious double feature of Batman Begins, which was Christopher Nolan's other film this year, which is also about a fractured self mm -hmm. and about obsession and about uh, trauma and, you know, righteous rage that curdles into something worse. And I mean, there's, there's so many themes that are in both movies that you could create a great double feature of the two films. Um but the movie I'm going to go with is a movie made by a gentleman uh, with whom I just published an interview that I think also makes movies about two op opposing, strong opposing personalities who in some ways uh, can't live without each other, but are often trying to destroy one another. And that movie is John Woo's Face Off. Yes. Um, which, is in, <laughs> which is another movie that turns on like a scientific invention that seems utterly absurd. Uh, and yet the film just kind of takes it as a matter of fact, um, but also is about like, I mean, in, in its own completely demented, entirely unknown like way, but is about like two characters who are kind of unable to live their, their real lives because of their <laughs> obsession with one another. Um and that becomes, you know, physically manifested in like the fractured cells uh, insofar as in this case, they uh, trade each other's faces. <laughs> mm. Yes, face off and the prestige, I think, would make a fantastic double feature. Brad, I don't think we're going to top this. I'm so mad that we didn't save that for last because that's yeah. a, 
I mean, anytime you can suggest a Travolta cage pairing with any movie we do, you it's you win. Winner. Yeah. All right, Brad, you want to go next? Uh, sure. I, you know, I usually try to pick my double feature based on the theme of the film. And so I started thinking to my brain, I was like, what are some great movies about like obsessiveness? And I realized There Will Be Blood, I think would be just an incredible double feature. Hmm. And I, so yeah, that's my pick. There Will Be Blood. I think it would be a really depressing evening, but I think you would watch some great cinema. There you go. Yeah. Uh, in reading a little bit about this movie and some of the reviews that came out, one of the films that continually came up as a comparison point to this was Amadeus in terms of, you know, uh, a a diabolical and deadly rivalry. And huh. I think that that's a fantastic pairing, but it's not original to me, so I'm not going to claim it. But I do think that's probably one of the better ones you could do. I started thinking back through movies about obsession as well, Brad, and I'm going to come out with a pretty you know, a pretty milk toast one here, but like it's vertigo, man. Like oh, a movie dude. about a man who's the, the, the blonde love of his life is taken from him by a lie that is being told around him. Uh, and that he obsessively tries to recreate a time in his life by making it again in his own image, uh, only to his utter ruin. Like if it does not get more similar thematically than to pair this movie for me, at least, with Vertigo, and I think that like any chance I get to recommend Vertigo to people, I'm going to do it. Yeah, that that's a that is a perfect recommendation, Bob. It's not as good as Face Off, but I had I did my best. <laughs> no, it's, it's a good one. Both 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 of you came up with great ones. I think um, I will say that the, the the Vertigo thing makes me think. You know, there's probably a really great like Brian De Palma film that we oh yeah Prestige with. We could also like hire Brian De Palma to remake the Prestige, <laughs> and which would probably result in the just the sickest movie ever. But um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, like like um, I mean, Body Double or Femme Fatale or, or you know, there's so many films that you know that that take the ideas that are in the Prestige and just that are latent in the Prestige and just make them over. You know, I was thinking about this, actually. It's a it's a great point that you make. Like in in the current IP wasteland that we're in, where every filmmaker just has to get, you know, a Mattel product handed to them or something like I've been trying to think of if Nolan were to do a recognizable IP again outside of Batman, like what would be a great one thematically? I've been thinking about Frankenstein and like no one's made a good Frankenstein movie in a long time. And I really think this idea of like trying to resurrect the past and creating a freakish creature out of it and the ruination of everybody as a result. Like, that's a Christopher Nolan movie, if, if I've ever heard of one. So this yeah, is my official pitch. an incredible like, book. Yeah, exactly. Now, if you could tell it in, like, four different story, like, timelines, then it, it's definitely a perfect Christopher Nolan movie. Well, you'd Nolan have to movie. tell, like, like the, the story of the bride and then yeah. the story of Frankenstein. And then you'd have to tell the story of like Dr. Frankenstein, and then you'd have to tell the story of like Mary Shelley and that you'd have to interweave them. Um, <laughs> but which, by the way, like, why are we even talking about this in public? We should just like write that treatment and send it to him. A hundred percent. But, you yes. know, I mean, you know, Nolan is a, is a big fan of of Stanley Kubrick, obviously, and, and every Kubrick movie is is on some level a Frankenstein story, mm-hmm. you know, like it's no, you're right. You're absolutely right. And Frankenstein, like all those ideas that are in his movies. You know, the idea of, you know, the monstrousness of scientific knowledge and, and the machine that must not be used. And I mean, there's so many great, great ideas there. Wow, that's a great idea. 
I will leave it at that. I was complimented by Bilga Ibiri, and uh, my day has been made. <laughs> Guys, let's give this movie some final scores. Uh, Brad, I'll just get mine out of the way real quick. I think this is a really, really good movie. My enjoyment level of the movie was probably like a 9 out of 10, and I was not expecting that. Um, I think I'm going to come to an 8.5 on this movie, just because I do think there are some plot holes in the movie. There are some flaws to the film. It's not a perfect movie. But this has pretty rapidly risen up my ranking of Nolan films. I think this is a great movie and definitely fodder for some really good double features as well. So it's an 8.5 for me. Yeah, I think for me, I I came into this curious. You know, this is his fourth film, fifth maybe? Yeah, fifth movie. And fifth movie. And I, I feel like watching Memento, we mentioned that there was one or two moments, especially in the flashback scenes, where I was like, oh, there's Nolan. Like, like I can feel him in this scene. And I feel like Prestige, you know, you get some of that in Batman Begins. There, there's, there are things from that movie that feel very Nolan-esque. I feel like this is the first movie where I am fully immersed and I feel like I am watching a capital C Christopher Nolan film, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that that goes a long way towards showing what an incredible director he is, that that he is getting his grip on what his movies are going to feel like. And on top of all that, it's an incredible story about two men and their obsessive nature that just spirals into insanity. And I, I really, really love this movie. It's going to keep me coming back for years to come. So yeah, it's a nine out of 10 for me. I think I, I mean, I, I'm terrible with ratings because the movies I love are the ones I love and, and I can't, you know, mm-hmm. them clearly like it's a 10 out of 10 for me. Um, I just, I revisited so many times. I, I have a, an ongoing Nolan ranking at Vulture. I think it's number three there, number three or four, but it's also like every single one of those movies is great. Like, except for like maybe the bottom two, which are following in insomnia, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, I, I can't, I can't, Give it less than a 10, even though, you know, it's it's not quite on the level of Dark Knight or Dunkirk for me. But, you know, what is? All right. So there you have it. I gave it an eight and a half. Brad gave it a nine. Bilga gives it a 10. I love it when uh, our scores ascend as we give them. That's always. nice. Yeah, it's always nice when a, a, a guest comes on the show and is like, man, I love this movie. And here's why. And I'm have zero shame. It's a 10 out of 10 that like that just warms my heart <laughs> me too and that's like my expectation because when we when we send out invites to guests like we let them pick the movie and i'm always shocked when someone's like yeah this is a solid seven I'm like what are you talking about like you you <laughs> picked this movie man so so bilga thank you for doing what you're supposed to do and giving this movie a 10 out of 10 i appreciate it oh yeah all right yeah. uh as we wind down today bilga please plug yourself where can we find you what are you working on that you're allowed to divulge to us now uh, I, uh, you can always find my stuff at vulture.com. Uh, that's, you know, that's my employer. So that's really kind of where my stuff is or New York magazine. Um, and these days, well, I'm working on an Opp- Oppenheimer piece, uh, that, uh, that will be dropping soon. Mm. Um, hopefully <laughs> <laughs> at the time of writing, uh, at the time of, at the time that we are talking, it has not been filed yet yeah. uh so hopefully it's not killed uh, before this runs out um but you know i'm always i'm always uh, you know every week i review something uh so uh, we always got something in the works 
I love it. Is there like a uh, is there a code of ethics around saying that your piece on Oppenheimer is dropping sometime soon? Like, are we uh, are we allowed to to lean into the double entendre of that one, or not so much with, with Oppenheimer? <laughs> Uh, uh, yes uh, somehow I suspect my piece will have less of an impact on world history that is fair that is fair to assume than the other one that dropped but yes well Bilga we cannot thank you enough for joining us today everybody this has been Bilga Ibiri one of our favorite film critics and lovers of the movie Face Off Brad we will be back next week as we finish out our little mini-series on Christopher Nolan with his 2017 film, Dunkirk. I'm pretty excited for that one. Is that going to be a first-time watch for you? It sure will, Bob. Oh, that's exciting. Cool. Yeah. All right, so join us next week for Dunkirk. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>